0: Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Well, this is a big day in the life of the church and the Christian calendar as we celebrate one of the most recognizable moments of the Christian year, the the procession of the palms. You guys had palms in your hands. You felt them. They were part of your worship experience. And for most of us, it's a way to proclaim that Jesus truly is Lord of our lives. You feel that today? And as we sing and shout Hosanna, we proclaim that Christ alone is our help and our salvation. This cry comes directly from the scripture passages that we are hearing today, which we'll be getting to in a few moments, but I have to confess something or a disclaimer here at the start, that Palm Sunday is actually one of the hardest Sundays of the year for me. And it's not because I dislike the palms, the palms are great, they're fun, Maybe a little awkward, <laughs> but the poems are great. And it's not because somehow like I'm dreading the upcoming passion and holy week remembrances. And it's not because the scripture passages for this Sunday on the Christian calendar are particularly challenging or hard to interpret. It's it's just that this is one of the hardest weeks of the Christian calendar for me because the message is so utterly clear and honestly it can be a hard message not only to preach but a hard message to receive submitting to this message today can be difficult for us in our culture in our time in history we're celebrating the parade that ushered the kingdom that we long desired into Jerusalem. And therefore we celebrate that same kingdom ushering into our lives today. But as we peel back the curtains and kind of look into this deeper part of the story, there's there's a little bit of rain on the parade. But stick with me because as we know, every rain cloud has a silver lining, right? There is good news in this message today. Are we okay? Can we do this? We can do this. Let's pray. Lord, let your word, oh God, break into our hearts this morning, this day, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we may enter into the coming Holy Week with the same mind that was in Christ, that your will shall be done. Amen. Amen. We're gonna be in Matthew, chapter 21, and we'll be skipping ahead to chapter 27, but Let's start in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. It'll be on the screens for you. Let's hear the word of the Lord. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks, What are you doing this? Or why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs them and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they put their cloaks upon them and he sat on them. And a very large, crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them upon the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and followed them were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, today we're going to be looking at the wider story that's taking place during one of these most intensely charged moments in not only scripture, not only in the Christian year, but really in history. You know, when it says the whole city was in turmoil, the word that the scriptures is using, the original language there is using, like means that Jerusalem was shaking. It felt like an earthquake was going on. That's the word that's going on. The multitudes, the sheer number of people, the movement, the noise. The word used is sigh, which comes that we now use as the root of the seismic impact that earthquakes have on the world. If you were anywhere near the city of Jerusalem during this procession, right before the Passover, you would have felt the ground shaking beneath your feet. That's hard for us to imagine. I mean, maybe if you've been to a stadium or something and like the game is rocking, you can feel that. You've felt that before, Jay. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of weird feeling to feel that ground shaking. And that's what was happening. That's what was happening in this story. And of course, we hear the crowds. The crowds in the book of Matthew, they function like a character. Have you noticed this? Like Matthew's always talking about the crowds. They appear at the beginning of his ministry, coming to him from all over the region. The crowds sit and hear the Sermon on the Mount. They're listening to his teaching. They're repeatedly astounded at his authority as they see his capacity to heal the sick and perform miracles. They're amazed as he casts out demons and they say, never has anything been seen like this in all of Israel. Before the triumphal entry, the crowds, they've had their bellies filled twice. (laughs) They've had their bellies filled by Jesus through the multiplication of the fish and the loaves. So it might not be that surprising that now, here in this passage, that the crowds are once again showing so much enthusiasm. And it's heightened by the significance of the procession that is, in fact, is almost word for word used from this uh, book of Zechariah that the Jews would have known so, so well. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. For the crowds, they were seeing prophecy fulfilled in their midst. And of course, we can't forget what they were shouting. They were shouting Hosanna, right? Hosanna to the son of David. The crowds were shouting Hosanna. It means save us. Save us is what they were shouting. Save us. You have to ask yourself, save us from what? What are they wanting saving from? This morning, we're going to take a little bit of a history back back story. We're going to take a dive into the story that's going on, the story that these people who are greeting Jesus were experiencing and feeling. And I think this story... By hearing this, it gives us some uh, some perspective and it allows us to feel intensely what the people who were greeting Jesus that morning were feeling, that day were feeling. And we're not just aiming at the highlights of the context. For me, as I was looking into this, I was like blown away by the weight and the significance. I hope that you feel a little bit of, of measure of that. I want you to feel the weight of what Jesus was stepping into On this day, I want you to feel the weight of what Jerusalem means, not only biblically, but to the world. What it means. I want you to get get a sense of what the kingdom of God is, but also what the kingdom of God is not. That's a big part of the story today. This Jewish celebration that was taking place during these events leading up to holy week is called passover in the city of jerusalem there would be hundreds of thousands of jewish pilgrims hundreds of thousands of jewish pilgrims gathering for one of these the most holy and significant festivals of the jewish year you see the the passover for many of you this is familiar but the passover retells the story of the Jews' liberation from Egypt. Remember the story, Moses and the plagues and all that kind of stuff? You know, Jesus, the Jews had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, hundreds and hundreds of years, when God raises up a prophet, Moses, who will lobby for their freedom from Egypt. We have all the miraculous signs that God performs in the face of Pharaoh to help let them know that God's favor is on these people and that he should let them go. Pharaoh keeps going, well, sure, you can go. Wait, never mind. Yes, no, yes, no. He's like flip-flopping, right? Until the final sign, when the angel of death marks, comes raging through Egypt and the firstborn of each family is taken, all except for those who have the blood of the lamb marked on their doorposts. When Pharaoh and Egypt experienced this, he's like, get out of here, <laughs> go. He does change his mind one more time, but it doesn't work out. So the Passover celebrates God's intervention for the Jews. The Passover celebrates God's intervention of justice and freedom from the Jews in the face of occupation, in the face of subject, being subjected to Egypt, and for the Jews who are celebrating Jesus, they would feel this need of justice from Rome who's occupying them. So the Romans do what Romans do. Of course, we know at this time of Jesus that Jerusalem and all the region was ruled by Rome. The Jews were kind of captives in their own land. And when something like this is happening, When there's a celebration among the subjugated people, Rome does what they do. They roll in with power and force, shock and awe. So during every Passover festival or every festival like Passover, the Romans would show up. They would bring their centurions, their guards, their legions, and they would march into the city just to help remind the Jews of who is really in charge here. This is where we get the story that we've heard many times, the story of the two triumphal entries into the city on Palm Sunday. Because every Passover, the Romans would march into the city proclaiming total domination and authority. They would have a leader on a horse, they would have their crowds following, and they would be marching in in power. And then, of course, we hear the story of Jesus riding in on a donkey in humility, But no less enthusiasm, no less expectation from the people who are calling after him. Save us, son of David. And they're shouting this because the Jews not only have hope in the promises of a Messiah to come, like from the passage in Zechariah, but they also have precedent from history of a warring king bringing freedom from those that are oppressing them. Some of you may know your world history. Alexander the Great, around 332 BC, is on the scene invading and conquering this region. And he invades and conquers the weakened city of Jerusalem. Remember our story from last week, the Valley of Dry Bones? The people of God could simply not help themselves from turning their back on him time and time again. They had weakened themselves. They were turning to foreign gods. They were... Uh, They were worshiping idols. They were offering sacrifices to foreign gods. And therefore, Jerusalem had been weakened. And it was um, prone to the conquering that Rome brought into this region. Rome rolled in with a killing machine. Their legions into Jerusalem began conquering the people, not entirely by force, but by culture. The Greeks had a program called Hellenization, where they would simply deconstruct the culture of the, of the group that they were invading by occupying them, by taking away the things that they could do. During this whole time, this 300 BC up to Christ's birth, the Jews were forbidden from practicing the Torah as Yahweh had commanded. They were, they were, the act of circumcision was outlawed. They did not allow them to eat a kosher diet according to scripture. But their ultimate act was to desecrate the temple. So during this time of Alexander the Great, there was this desecration of the temple that was about to happen. The Romans like forced the Jews to sacrifice a pig upon the altar. And this would have been the ultimate slap in the face for the Jews. But at the very last minute, a godly priest rises up from the Maccabean family and he kills the priest who was about to sacrifice the pig. And out of this revolt that starts, up steps Judas of Maccabeus, who leads a campaign of warfare against the Romans all throughout the region, but also in Jerusalem, and ultimately experiencing a bit of freedom. They ultimately win back the territory. They win back Jerusalem from the Romans and Alexander the Great. They rededicated the temple. And they experienced a short season of religious and political freedom from the occupation around them. And so when the crowds are shouting, when the crowds are shouting, they'd remember this story. Because when Judas of Maccabeus rode into Jerusalem those hundreds of years prior, can you guess what they were shouting? They were shouting, Hosanna, save us. The story continues, it wasn't long, around 63 BC, when once again Rome invades. And this time they clamp oppression and uh, siege even stronger around the city. And Rome really had three systems that they used to dominate the people that they were invading. Political oppression, economic oppression, and religious oppression. So for political oppression, Rome would subvert the leaders and rulers and replace them with people who were loyal to Rome. It would say, hey, we'll let you live and operate in this way, but you've gotta gotta be totally dedicated to us. You've gotta claim authority of Caesar. They were essentially puppet kings, puppet leaders. But then also economic oppression, they would squeeze every last bit of resource out of their subjects through taxes, the Jews were, I mean, we feel like taxes are hard for us. This is a tax season, right? The Jews were taxed, a temple tax, an age tax. You were taxed differently depending on how old you were, a wage tax, the tax to just be able to do business, a Herod tax. One scholar estimates the typical Jew at the time of Jesus was paying about 90% of their income to taxes to Rome. Like we feel like it's hard for us, right? There's something to say, save us from in that. And then finally, the, re- the religious system. They couldn't fully dismantle, you know, the, the religious beliefs of the Jews, but they could make it hard, and they did make it hard. They made it hard, but they also, again, like they did with the political system, they kind of put puppet leaders in, even in the temple, even in the Jewish leaders. And so there was still this underlying effort or this underlying sense that we're subjugated by Rome. But at least Rome hadn't done what they did to other places where they just raped and pillaged and raised the whole city to the ground, right? And that was their trick. They would say, hey, look, we won't kill you utterly. We won't utterly wipe you out, but you've got to do things our way and you've got to proclaim lordship of Caesar. You just gotta live by our rules, and you can do it our way. So there was kind of an agreement being made. There was like an agreement being made between the Jews and the Romans. And so what would the people have been thinking when, as they gather for the Passover feast, the Passover festival, Jesus, comes riding into the city. They'd be thinking about Judas of Maccabeus. They'd be thinking, we need another warring king to come free us from Rome. They'd be thinking, Hosanna, save us. This is the Messiah that they've been looking for, the Messiah they've been waiting for, another Judas of Maccabeus, another warrior priest. This is the kingdom that they had hoped for, a warring kingdom that would dominate and dismantle the foreman powers around them through force and violence and rebellion. This is the only way to get things done in the Roman culture. So as Jesus rode into town on that donkey, in the crowd's eyes, Judas of Maccabeus was back. And it was only a matter of time before his followers started fighting and dismantling the Roman system around them. But, was Jesus that kind of Messiah? We know the story. We we know the story that Jesus didn't live up to those expectations. You see, you can't break the cycle of violence and oppression with violence and oppression. But this isn't what the crowds wanted to hear. (laughs) Jesus continued with his message of the kingdom he continued to preach the message that we've been hearing all through scripture. Things like, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that you can observe, nor will, you, will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you now. The kingdom of God is by the finger of God, and it casts out demons, therefore it has come among you. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has been kept secret. These are all messages from the gospels of Jesus describing the kingdom of heaven. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take that kingdom by force. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world... My servants would be fighting. Jesus had said this before. My servants would be fighting, but that, I might, but that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And so therefore, they're not fighting. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and put into three measures of flour until it, the full batch was leavened. Jesus was not promising a kingdom who achieves its purposes through war and violence. Instead, the kingdom is one of peace, mercy, forgiveness, freedom, healing, a quiet, persistent, unstoppable growth, like yeast working its way through dough. But this isn't what the crowds wanted to hear. The crowds and the Jewish leaders wanted a warring king, Or no kingdom at all. Because honestly, this kingdom that Jesus is offering is just going to make the Romans mad. It's just going to make it worse. Like they've made this plea bargain. They've made this deal. They're able to kind of live and function in a a level of freedom. Maybe not the way they would write it up if they were in charge. But Jesus is just going to mess it up. Some of the Jews even benefited from this deal that had been cut with the Romans. So if Jesus wasn't offering a warring kingdom that was going to get rid of Rome, then it would be best if Jesus just went away. And so the crowds did what the crowds do when they don't get their way. They turned on Jesus. In a matter of days, just hours, the same fists that were waving palms aloft, shouting Hosanna, just a few verses later are clenched and shaken in front of Jesus, saying crucify him. Let's pick up the story in Matthew 27. Matthew 27, starting in verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus killed. So the governor asked again and said to them, Which of these two would you like me to release? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? And all of them said, Let him be crucified. Then he asked, What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather... When Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am an innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, his blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas to them. And after flogging, Jesus was handed over to be crucified. So unfortunately, the, the story doesn't get better from here. Of course, we know the story of Christ, of the, resur- of the cross and the resurrection. So the Christian story gets better. But the story of Jews, of the Jews and Jerusalem, it gets worse from here. <laughs> you know, we'll be retelling the story of the passion, the passion that Christ experienced in Holy Week on Good Friday, and we hope that you join us. And we also know that the story doesn't end even on Good Friday. For us Christians, we celebrate the resurrection and the victory of Jesus over sin and death and the breaking of chains that has held us. That happens on Easter. But what about the people in Jerusalem and the surrounding regions in the days to come? Around 70 AD, three days before the Passover, the Roman army once again started besieging Jerusalem. In previous years, the city had kind of, again, kind of experienced a revival or kind of a a, a moniker of freedom from from the Romans. But once again, Rome was back and they began laying siege to Jerusalem. Within weeks, the Roman army had broken through the walls of Jerusalem. There was fighting and resistance. And according to her, the historians, the city was ravaged by murder and by famine. It was utterly defeated. It was thought that over one million Jews were killed during this revolt in 70 AD. The temple was, pal- was, was destroyed. It was pillaged of all of its gold, it was set on fire, and not a single stone was left standing. And you know what they did with all the gold they took from the temple, what Rome did with all that gold? It went back to Rome. The gold was then used for the building of the Colosseum and all of the other things that we saw in Roman culture during the time. This gold that the Old Testament tells us that the Jews crafted into the beautiful ornaments of the temple, the gold that Solomon used to dedicate the temple, all of this went back to Rome and was put to use in a lot of things, but one of the things that was put to use to was the building of the Colosseum, where Jews and Christians were martyred and killed, tragic. So you might remember the story that I started with, I said, there's going to be a silver lining. Let's start shifting (laughs) because this is pretty bleak, right? You can read the remainder of that story in scripture, obviously starting in the book of Acts and reading through the rest of the New Testament, because obviously the kingdom of God wasn't killed by the Romans in the sacking of Jerusalem. We're told much of the story, we told much of this story last spring when we kind of walked through these passages and acts leading up to Pentecost. And we'll hear many of them again this year as we do the same. But in brief, like the leaven that the woman put into three measures of flour, the kingdom of God began quietly, persistently and unstoppably to grow. Sometimes with thousands and hundreds coming to faith in Jesus at once, but oftentimes just single households or individuals would receive peace and mercy and forgiveness, healing. And the kingdom began to grow that way. It began to grow that way, changing lives. Remember the story of the Roman centurion who had the son who needed healing, and he asked Jesus to heal, and Jesus said, I'll come. And he said, Don't come just say the word and he'll be healed i know how it works and he was healed and this centurion and his whole household turned to faith in christ this happened over and over and over again the kingdom that jesus had ushered in began to quietly subvert and spread we sit here today because that kingdom that jesus brought did not die when the temple was destroyed but that it's been growing all through history. And Rome and its empire eventually did fall. We know this. Around 470 AD, the empire that had ruled the region, this region of the world, for well over a 1,000 years fell. There's lots of reasons why Rome fell. Some historians say they just spread themselves too thin. Some said finally their military power had weakened. They began retreating from occupied territory, so it started shrinking. The growth of other warring nations like the Huns and, and folks like that who started taking back this territory. But one of the theories of how and why Roman fell, listen to this, the kingdom of God. The decline of Rome dovetailed with the spread of Christianity. And some have argued that the rise of the new faith in Christ helped contribute to Rome's weakening and eventually to its fall. The Edict of Milan legalized Christianity in 313 AD, and later it became the state religion, even of Rome, in 380. These decrees ended centuries of persecution But they may have also eroded away the traditional value system of the Romans, Christianity displacing the polyistic Roman religion, which viewed the emperor as having divine status. And it also shifted focus away from the glory of the state and onto a God of Christianity. So we're calling this sermon, The Tale of Two Kingdoms. We're seeing the different ways that two kingdoms have worked and have achieved their purposes, but we could easily call this sermon, A Tale of Two Crowds. Today, we ask ourselves the same question that those crowds during the Passion Week, during the Passover, needed to wrestle with. What kind of Messiah do we want? What kind of Messiah do you want? One day waving a palm branch, shouting, save us. And on another day, a fist clenched, shouting, crucify him. What kind of savior do you want? How can we process this? I mean, this is where it's hard for me. I sense it in the room. This is where it's hard for me. How do we process that question? What kind of savior do I want? How do I imagine him accomplishing his purposes? Do me a favor, let's, let's look at our hands. Take your hands, hold them in your lap. Think about them. Think about the actions, the motivations, the directions, the posture that your hands took last week in the weeks previous. Today, these very hands were waving palm branches. They were shouting praises to the Lord. They were used to greet one another, to put a hand on one another's shoulders in compassion and mercy. But thinking about your days previous, your month previous, What Messiah did these hands direct you to? What voices did they lead you to, whether online or TV or radio? What postures did they take when encountering fear and trial and frustration like the Jews experienced during that Passover week? What sources of comfort did they facilitate for you? You might see now why this week on the Christian calendar and the message of the Palms is is kind of challenging for me because they make me really wrestle with the question of what kind of Messiah do I want? What kind of kingdom do I want? As we consider the crowds who met Jesus in praise and later condemned him through their shouts, I hope we can ask ourselves, In humility, in what ways, big or small, do we push aside Jesus when his kingdom does not align with our kingdoms? In what ways, big or small, do we push aside Jesus and his kingdom when they do not align with our kingdoms? You know, I think appropriately, I think we should end our sermon this morning, our time before we come to the table in just a moment of reflection. And whether that means for you taking a a posture, maybe you have been sitting for a while, maybe you'd like to stand, maybe you'd like to kneel, we have the altars on the side, but a posture of prayer where we consider what kingdom do we want? What Messiah are we shouting for? In a moment of prayer, for me, I'm saying no to the preferential kingdoms that I chase after from time to time. The preferential kingdoms of our culture, kingdoms of evil and domination, but even kingdoms masked as good, even kingdoms masked as the right kind of values that we hold, even with scripture, kingdoms that sound good, but their motives and their outcomes just aren't right. In our prayer, may we say yes to the kingdom of peace and mercy and forgiveness and healing and freedom that Jesus taught, a kingdom that quietly, persistently, and unstoppably changes the world. After a moment of silence and prayer that we're entering into, I will lead us in the praying of our prayer of confession that we've been praying throughout this season of Lent. But let us take a few moments and pray.